Strong is brought to you by Blickman Engineering, home of the Riptide. Visit them online at BlickmanEngineering.com. for the beer radio you've been looking for. This is the show that dispels myths, tackles the toughest topics, and makes no apologies for geeking out on beer. Hosted by two guys that drink before they think, Jamil Zainashev and John Palmer. This is Brew Strong. Hey, howdy, hey, my brewing brothers and sisters. Greetings, cretins. There he is. The great John Palmer. I'm Justin Crosley filling in for Jamil Zanishef, who I think is going to be back with you next month at HomebrewCon, Palmer. That's right, yeah. He's uh, on the mend. He's getting getting his treatments finished up. And uh, um, maybe that's too much information, but um, <laughs> basically... Basically, Jamil is dealing with a non-STD right, um, and a non-cancerous condition that just requires lots of bed rest and um, and such. So yeah. that's why he can't be with us at last month or so. That's right. And he told me he didn't mind us uh, talking about it for his fans and listeners, uh, just to know. But yeah, he will be okay. In fact, probably the worst part is they had to put, a, put him on a bunch of steroids, and so I think he was feeling the roid rage a couple of times in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It kind of messes with your... I mean, it's like, it I guess, the male version of, of hormones. Man, I was on him once. I couldn't get rid of this uh, sinus thing for, gosh, it was like a month or so, and the doctor uh-huh. you know, didn't know why. So finally she said, well, all right, we're just going to put you on some steroids and i'll tell you a week into that i was a maniac it was not yeah (laughs) that stuff will it'll mess with you a little bit um but he is on the mend and in fact he just sent me a note today uh so that the the three of us um with you here palmer can can figure out what our recording schedule will be at HomebrewCon. oh good good yeah want to do some shows there it's always fun having the live audience yeah, exactly. So we will work on that for you folks and, and let you know when you can come over to the Brewing Network booth and see John Palmer and Jamil Zanishev do their thing from HomebrewCon. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and while you're here, uh, please go to thebrewingnetwork.com if you want to come party with us. It'll be our 14th anniversary this year, and we're doing it out there on the Saturday night after HomebrewCon. It's at FET Music Hall, and for as little as 35 bucks, you can get your tickets and uh, come in and, and have some all, all you can taste with us. There'll be some live entertainment. I got a, a surprise band coming in. Um, nice. Yeah, it should be a good time. And also, with your ticket comes the chance to win the official Brewing Network More Beer Brew Sculpture. Uh, Sweet. Yeah, and as you've mentioned uh, before, th- this is the brew sculpture that Jamil brewed every single recipe, every single award-winning recipe in your book, uh, your guys' book. Brewing, brewing. Classic Styles, yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, the More Beer guys are going to help me uh, refurb that. Uh, there's not much wrong with it. It's just kind of been hanging out for a little too long. Get it all ready to go. And one <laughs> Some of you... pigeon nests and <laughs> yeah, things like that. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> uh, but one of you lucky listeners is going to get to uh, go home with a more beer brew sculpture sweet yeah that should be a good time um and then also while we're here uh let's just give a big shout out and thanks to our friend john blickman over at blickman engineering who we uh definitely yeah yeah we just we just did our last show with him uh talking about burners yeah and i think we kind of really laid the laid the whole playing field for you know how you heat water with that show really happy he was on that show with us yeah he always does a great job and uh, we covered you know whether or not you're going to do it in on an electric stove in your apartment all the way to a a propane a mega propane burner and all the way back to um electric uh, brew systems so yeah uh, so go check that out on the Bruce strong uh, podcast so today john palmer uh you have the you have the <laughs> yeah we're kind of doing enzymes 2.0 there you um, go the task we, of teaching me about enzymes is what i was thinking you've got here <laughs> yeah 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 these these gnarly little proteinaceous bits that uh allow us to do what we do 
All right. So, uh, yeah, science never never been my strong point, but John, you're always good at at explaining these things in such a way that I think everyone could understand. So I'm I'm glad we're doing this, and maybe a refresher course for some of you, and uh, for those of you who are just getting into brewing, um, you know, this will be some good stuff that you'll always use. So, yeah. uh, where do we begin with brewing enzymes, Palmer? Well, you know, um, I want to be able to frame this up in a big picture sort of way for everybody. Um, But, you know, we do, we should start at the beginning with the barley. And I think it's it's useful to understand that, you know, barley, it's a cereal grain. It is a grass and it is an agricultural product. We're talking about you know, something that grows, something that is grown in several different preferential regions around the world. Um, it is grown in different climates, and uh, it is grown, you know, different varieties. I mean, if you think about, you know, you going to the seed catalog and selecting your tomatoes or your or your peppers or your squashes, you know, that you're going to grow in your garden, um, there there is very much that same variety when it comes to barley. And different variety barleys have different characteristics. Um, they grow better in different regions. One common uh, question I had over the years is like, oh, you know, if Maris Otter barley is so great, why don't we grow it in the United States? Hmm. Well, well, there's a reason for that. It's the wrong climate. Um, and uh, the Maris Otter is a UK variety. It's an older variety. Um, it doesn't have the yield per acre that a lot of modern uh, brewing ver- barley varieties do. Um, and it's very dependent on the the UK climate uh, for its you know good growth, which is tends to be wetter and cooler than what we have uh, in the United States and Canada out on the Great Plains, where most of our barley is grown. Okay. Um, so you know, um, yeah, different regions, different barley varieties, all you know come together uh, to create variety and variability in the properties of the barley that we're brewing with. So I want you to keep that thought in mind as we are talking about something that changes, you know, year to year, region to region. So when we try to we try to generalize about uh, malt and enzymes, uh, we are generalizing because there is a lot of natural variability all the time. Okay. And part and parcel with that is the effect of the maltster. You know, you uh, the maltsters buy barley from you know different regions of the world, and then they bring it into their plants and they germ they partially germinate it. This is the malting process. What we're doing is we're taking this rock hard little seed that comes from the farm, and we allow we soak it in water. That's what the maltster does. They soak it in water and uh, get it to hydrate, trick it into thinking, okay, it's spring, it's time to grow. That little seed starts to grow. And in starting to grow, it releases enzymes inside the seed that start breaking down its starch reserves. And it's those starch reserves that we as brewers eventually convert to sugars in our mash and ferment into beer. So the maltster starts this germination process, starts that little seed starting to grow, releases these internal enzymes, breaks down this starch reserve, and then he dries the barley out to stop that process so that in um, the starch reserve has been opened up and made available to the plant. But we stop it because we don't want to grow a plant. Hmm. If you let the malting process go on too long, you'd end up with a little salad sprout. Okay. Yeah. You know, and uh, you can't can't brew a salad sprout. <laughs> Got it. So, <laughs> so yeah, the monster does this, dries it out, and then you know, depending on uh, the, the brewer's needs, um, he can he he will dr- in drying that barley, he may if you just dry it, that becomes your base malt. That is, it's a low temperature kilning, uh, drying process, and it makes your pilsner malt, your two row base malt, you know these pale malts that have a color of you know one to two srm. 
SRM standing for Standard Reference Method from the American Society of Brewing Chemists. Mm. Um, and uh, so that's your base malt. Now you can take that base malt and you can kiln it at a little higher temperature and you can get some get some warmer, breadier, maltier uh, flavors by doing that. And that produces your pale ale malt and your Vienna malt. And if you take it even a little higher and a little bit wetter, now you produce some dark bread crust flavors and that's your Munich malt, very malty flavors that you can get in your in your barley and your malt. And does that uh, and, does that toasting, uh, you know, at any of the higher temperatures have any effect on the enzymes as well? Do they get killed off in any way? Yeah, they do. Um, as you go, especially up to Munich malt, which is the highest uh, toasting um, of the, of the highest kilning of the malt. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you denature. That is, you chemically or uh, structurally change the shape of the molecule um, and that denatures the molecule denatures the enzyme so that it can't work okay uh, and uh, I guess that's a good good time to bring up what is an enzyme well an enzyme is a small protein um, a protein just referring to the carbon oxygen and nitrogen bonds within the molecule, and so they tend proteins tend to be very long chains, and in the case of an enzyme, um, it is a large molecule that uh, has a shape to it. And in the previous show in 2008, when uh, Jamil and I were talking about enzymes with our good friend Colin Kaminsky, um, I compared the structure and function of an enzyme to being a key that you fit in the lock. And actually, it's the very opposite. (laughs) An enzyme is bigger than the molecules, the carbohydrates that it acts on. And so it actually works more like a tooling fixture or like, um, you know, something that you take this starch molecule and you lay the starch molecule into the enzyme structure. And now the enzyme structure is able to act on that starch and break it up. And that's how it converts starches into sugars. Okay. So an enzyme is kind of a large tool that these other um, starches and sugars fits into. I see. Okay. Yeah. So those are enzymes, and and the barley produces these enzymes, and it and the the type of enzymes it produces, the amount of enzymes it produces, um, all that is kind of a function of the barley variety, um, the amount of starch that and protein that make up the endosperm of the of the barley seed that is going to be a function again of barley variety and growing climate and region so again here's this agricultural variability uh that you know comes to the maltster that they have to work with they analyze the barley how much protein does it have how much starch does it have and adjust their malting process to, you know, best malt that barley and prepare it for the brewer. So the farmer grows the barley, obviously, and depending on the variety, uh, will will let the maltster know what uh, enzymes are available, and then it's the maltster's <laughs> job to make them available to me as a brewer. Yeah, the the types of enzymes, I guess, are. are I misspoke earlier. Hmm. The types of enzymes are set. Okay. It's the kind of the proportions that uh, vary a little bit. And again, this this endosperm, this protein starch matrix that holds all the starches that the brewer wants to use, the the toughness of that matrix, the the uh, ability of the maltster to break that down for the brewer mm-hmm. that varies you know season to season and with barley variety okay. so yeah that's what the maltster is doing they they analyze the barley they then they start the malting process and they gauge the malt as they malt it to see when it's ready okay and the property that they're 
estimating is is its uh, friability and its uh, softness, um, and this and the overall property that we talk about in terms of uh, malt is modification. Um, and what we're trying to describe is how well this protein-carbohydrate matrix that holds the starches, how well that matrix has been degraded um, by the germination and malting process to make these these starches available to the brewer. Um, and uh, it helps if you look at history a bit and say, okay, how you know we've been making beer for thousands of years. How did we know what we were doing? Well, uh, I don't really know that, but you know, huh. it, it, the yeah. process hasn't changed. You soak the barley in water; it starts to sprout. You dry it, then you crush it. You put it in more water. You know, do the mash. These starches convert to sugars. Um, it's useful to understand that historically, um, malting and brewing houses were on the same site. Every brewery had its malting house that they, you know, because they would buy barley, they would malt it, and then they would mash it. Malting and mashing are really two sides of the same coin. You can't make beer without malting at first. And uh, the more you malt it, the less you have to mash it. The less you malt it, the more you have to mash it. Hmm. Okay. And it's it's all about it's all about activating these enzymes and breaking down this endosperm to release the starches to turn them into sugars, and that's all enzymes and activity and and so on. So that's and if I can get the cat to stop making noise in the background, <laughs> cat wants to learn too. So yeah. so what you're talking about now in this modification. Um, this is where brewers, uh, you know, modern brewers will, you know, will sometimes argue, well, malts are so highly modified now that I don't have to do so many steps in a mash and, and so That's on. That's correct. So That's what they're talking about. Yes. That we've figured and, out in modern times how to modify these malts in such a way that brewing has become more efficient. Yes. Okay. Very much so. And really over the last, especially over the last hundred years, um, barley agronomy, you know, um, developing new varieties of barley. Mm-hmm. We're getting barley that has more yield per acre, um, barley that has higher amounts of enzymes in the in the kernel, mm-hmm. and also barley that is easier to malt. Um, it, you know, it used to be historically that malting would take about seven days. Now it takes about four days. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, so you know we've done lots of lots of research over the over the centuries to make beer easier to produce, and uh, the malt and the malting process uh, have have been part of that. So, yeah, we've got now got barley that's easier to modify, easier to break down this starch, uh, this protein carbohydrate matrix that holds the starches in the endosperm and so that um, it takes less mashing to release those starches and convert them to sugars. Okay. Is there any argument to be made that, that in this, in this process, uh, in this evolution that we've lost some flavor or do you think it's even the opposite? No, I, I think there is, there is some, something to say there. Um, I, I don't think, I don't think we've done enough side-by-side studies mm. to be able to say definitively what that transition you know causes. Sure. But yeah, I think we have especially if you look at um barley agronomy uh as it has actually happened over this last century um you know that uh, the big drivers for changes in barley varieties and so on development has been the mega brewers you know the ones that are producing industrial lagers mm. they want barley that is easy to malt easy to mash high enzyme potential I mean, yeah, they they've really driven bar, modern barley varieties to this very fast conversion, where 
Um, it, you know, you really, if you use long mashing processes, you can over mash the barley. Um, you can do too much protein degradation, and we'll talk more about that in a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can, yeah, you can uh, essentially degrade the quality of the wort that you're producing from the barley. Okay. But um, I, as we as we talk, we're going to kind of put that in perspective, too. Okay. Fair enough. Do you want to take a quick break here? Yeah. Yeah. All right, let's do that, and we'll come back and learn more about the enzymatic process in your brewing with John Palmer. Hang in there. Are you looking for a simple brewing system that's great for all grain brewing, but everything on the market seems to be full of compromises? Blickman Engineering has the answer. The Blickman Brew Easy All Grain Brewing System. The Brew Easy is a complete system with easy upgrades and a beautiful compact design, perfect for any size brewing location. At its core, the Brew Easy is built on two gorgeous Blickman Boilermaker brew kettles, a high temperature March pump, and either a top tier gas burner or the new boil coil electric heater. The Brew Easy adapter lid allows the pots to stack on top of each other, forming an efficient, strong, and compact brewing setup that comes in 5, 10, and 20-gallon batch sizes. Upgrade your BrewEasy system with full automated control by adding a Blickman Tower of Power temp controller and make moving around easy with the Blickman Kettle Cart. The BrewEasy is modular. If you already own a Boilermaker kettle, you can build your BrewEasy by purchasing just the modules you need. The new BrewEasy all-grain brewing system. See it today at BlickmanEngineering.com and brew with Blickman quality on your new BrewEasy. Back to your hosts, Jamil Zaynashev and John Palmer. Putting the testicles in technical. This is Brew Strong. That's right. Welcome back. Filling in for uh, Jamil Zaynashev, I'm Justin Crosley here with the great John Palmer. And hey. We are talking enzymes. Yeah. All right, John. Yeah, enzymes in the big picture of malting and mashing and what the hell is going on. Okay, great. So what's next on our agenda? Okay, so we've talked about the malting process. What we're doing is we're taking barley and malting it to release these enzymes and modify the endosperm uh, to release these, these starches for the brewer to use. So now we move on to the mashing process. And in mashing, um, we're going to crush up the grain. We're going to make it easy to rehydrate and get everything going again, release these enzymes that are you know, in the barley. We're going to release them into the mash, into the water, into the wort that we're forming. But here's a little caveat. Okay. You can't convert starches to sugars if they're not water-soluble. And this process is called gelatinization or pasting. Um, what we're gonna, the reason we use hot water, you know, 150-ish degrees Fahrenheit, 65 degrees Celsius, is because hot water uh, is able to better penetrate the starches and hydrate them. And when you hydrate these starches, you open up their structure. Um, When you first crush the the endosperm and these starches um, are released into the water, they're in very small nodules. They're starch granules, if you will. And water has to penetrate those and swell that structure and open it up. And only when that starches become water-soluble and opened up, can the enzymes actually get in there and start acting on those starch molecules and cutting them up into individual sugars. Okay. And uh, just to clarify that point for for people that are new to this uh, biochemistry, um, a starch is a very long chain of glucose molecules, a glucose being a six-carbon sugar, and these are all attached in a very long chain. A group of these chains looks like the head of a a mop or like a weeping willow tree, Um, and uh, the, the enzymes 
have to get in there and attack or you know bond onto an individual chain in order to nip off the sugar molecules to create the sugars. This conversion of starches to sugars is really just a cutting up of these starch chains. I see. Okay, so again, that's big picture. Now, but let's talk some more about um, you know the uh, the what's going on when we first put the 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 crushed barley malt into the mash. Um, we talked about gelatinization, the fact that the hot water is able to get in and hydrate the starch granules and swell and expand. Um, those starch chains so that the enzymes can act on them. Uh, gelatinization is a gradual process. It starts at a temperature and finishes at a temperature. And in the case of barley in general, let me look for my notes. Where did I put them? Should have done this earlier. Oh, there we go. <clears throat> Here we go. Um, in general... Barley gelatinization occurs from 59 degrees C to 63 degrees C or 138 degrees Fahrenheit to about 145 degrees Fahrenheit. That's the general range. Now, going back to you know barley as an agricultural product, lots of varieties, lots of growing regions, uh, climate conditions, it can actually range anywhere from 126 degrees Fahrenheit starting to 150 degrees Fahrenheit finishing, or 52 to 68 degrees C. So there's, you know, from a maltster's point of view, you know, when they malt the barley, uh, they're looking at these properties, they're looking at the amount of protein, they get kind of an indicator of of that um, the barley is delivered from the maltster to the brewer now the brewer has to look at the malt analysis sheet look at the protein percentage the starch percentage um, some other properties on there um, they may need to adjust their mash temperatures by a degree or two to make sure they get full gelatinization because if the starch isn't gelatinized, it's not going to be converted to sugars, and your yield from the mash will will decrease. Got it. Yeah. So there's the gelatinization is a is a science unto itself. Um, different cereal grains have different ranges. Uh, we in brewing we often brew with uh, rye and oats and wheat. And rye, oats, and wheat all have gelatinization ranges that are pretty close to barley's. So we can use them uh, directly in the mash, get most of the conversion that we want to from those other cereal grains because their gelatinization ranges are pretty close. But in the case... Go ahead. Sorry. Oh, no. Well, I was just wondering because, you know, that just makes me think also that sometimes when people use a lot of rye or a lot of oats or other things, they're also create a problem mashing out because they're gelatinous as well. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Um, although we are trying to we are starting to use two different meanings of gelatinous. Here. OK, OK. And uh, but yeah, that and that that's a great question because uh, this is probably a confusing term for people. When I when I'm speaking about gelatinization or or pasting of starch, that is the solubilization of the starch, um, I'm talking about simply getting it into solution so that the enzymes can act on it. But one of the properties of starch in hot water is that it increases viscosity. And that's kind of what you're alluding to, especially in the case of rye and oats. Mm -hmm. um, these cereals have um, uh, more protein, they, and they also have um, a higher proportion of beta-glucan and cellulose. Um, and this is a this is a little area I forgot to mention during during the malting process. Another function of the malting process. Um, for barley and for other cereal grains as well, 
is in this modification, one of the enzymes or a couple groups of enzymes that are breaking down and modifying this endosperm uh, to release the starches, they're degrading these cell walls. And these cell walls are made from what we call non-starch polysaccharides. In other words, they are starch-like chains um, that have they aren't sugars. They don't have the six-carbon uh, molecule. They have like five-carbon and seven-carbon. <laughs> They're non-starch polysaccharides. And uh, beta-glucanase and cellulase are two classes of enzymes that work on these non-starch polysaccharides and break them up and help release those starches uh, for use in mashing. Cereal grains that haven't been malted, um, such as rye and oats, uh, very often we use flaked rye and flaked oats, um, these grains haven't been malted. These two enzyme groups, the beta-glucanases and the cellulases, haven't been utilized to break down those endosperms so that when you crush, when you either crush the grain and put it in the mash or you flake it, which partially cooks it and puts it in the mash, um, all this beta-glucan and cellulose is still present. It hasn't been broken down. And that greatly adds to the viscosity of the mash. Uh, and that's what you're alluding to is this, the fact that when you use high proportions of rye and oats, um, and also if you, do, you were to use flaked barley that hasn't been malted, you would greatly increase the viscosity and also the mouthfeel of the beer that would result. Understood. Okay, good. I'm glad we cleared that up because you're right about using those two terms interchangeably, but it, we should be careful. Yeah. 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 Okay. So great. Um, so let's see. Let's go back to mashing now. We've we've done this. Uh, we've done the gelatinization. We've done this cellulose breakdown, um, and now we we we're looking at the crushed barley in the mash, and we're looking. We we're trying to focus on getting starch conversion into sugars. Um, and those uh, that is a property of your amylases. But uh, again, I have to backtrack because I'm getting ahead of myself. Mm -hmm. um, proteases. Proteases are enzymes that work on proteins. And uh, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, um, you know, when barley was harder to malt, um, less modification would have occurred at the maltster. And therefore, um, the brewer needed to do more mashing to release the carbohydrates, the starches, and convert them to sugars. And part of that process, that increased mashing process, was to utilize protein rests to further break down that matrix. And so we have two classes of proteases and they're used in protein rests to do this. One is the endoproteases, endo meaning inside. Um, these endoproteases act to break up these large proteins uh, into medium-sized proteins by cleaving the protein molecule inside the molecule. Uh, and that breaks large proteins into medium proteins. Now, then the other class of uh, enzyme is the exopeptidases. And exopeptidases act outside the molecule or on the ends of the molecule. And uh, they nip off small peptides, very small proteins from the medium-sized proteins. And, uh, in fact, your exopeptidases are what produces your free amino nitrogen or your amino acids from uh, medium-sized and small proteins. So, proteases act to, one, to further break up that protein-carbohydrate matrix that surrounds the starches, finishing that modification process. Um, and also they produce your wort fan, your free amino nitrogen, your amino acids that the yeast cells need to grow and reproduce. Is that clear? Yes. 
Okay. Yeah. Good. Okay. So now we come to the main event. Now we've got <laughs> we've with the beta gluconases and cellulases have done their work breaking up the endosperm. The proteases have done their work breaking up the endosperm. That endosperm is now fully broken up and the starches have gelatinized, they've swelled, they've opened up their chains, and now the uh, amylase enzymes can start acting on them. And as I said earlier, the starch molecules are shaped like kind of like a weeping willow tree um, or like a, the, the head of a mop hanging down. You have lots of branching starch chains hanging down. And what your amylase enzymes do, there's three of them, they get in there and start creating sugars from these long starch chains. The first of them is alpha amylase. And alpha amylase is kind of like your uh, endoprotease in that it acts within the chain. It can break that chain in multiple locations inside. Uh, However, it can't do that next to a branch point. And so it can create you know, single molecule sugars, it can create um, double molecule sugars, Uh, it can create three and four and five, six, seven, eight, you know, um, molecule sugars, uh, which we refer to as dextrins, these larger sugars that the yeast can't ferment. Um, It can do that anywhere along the starch chain except next to a branch point. Um, Beta amylase is... uh, the real workhorse, uh, as far as well, I shouldn't say that. It is one of the main workhorses of this of the starch conversion process, and what it does is it produces our primary fermenting sugar, maltose. Maltose is a disaccharide. It's made up of two sugar molecules, two glucoses, and beta amylase as an enzyme can only act at the ends of the starch chain. It nips these two sugar units right off the ends, uh, so um, it can it can only you know take off the ends. It relies on alpha amylase to break up bigger chains in order to create more ends for it to work on. Yeah. So alpha and beta really work hand in hand in that in that manner. Okay. Now there's a third one that is actually vitally important. And it is called limit dextrinase. And what it does is it breaks up the branch point. So you would have, you know, if if with just alpha and beta operating on these starch chains, these branched starch chains, you would end up with a lot of what we call limit dextrins, where uh, because neither alpha or beta can act on the branch points, you would get these, you know, small branches kind of floating off and the enzymes can't act on them anymore. And a lot of, uh, you would end up with a lot of large dextrins as a result. But limit dextrinase is able to go in there and break that branch point and now you have two separate chains that the amylases, the other amylases, the alpha and beta, can continue to work on. So really we need all three of these. We can't, we're not going to have good beer without all three. That's right. Okay. There is a fourth one as well, which is called uh, alpha-glucosidase. And what it does, it, it works like beta, but it only nips off glucoses, a single molecule, rather than the double molecule maltose. Um, it doesn't produce a lot of glucose. It's, you know, like, what, five, two to 5%, depending on its concentration. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really, it's it's there but it's really more important from the growing plant's point of view because the growing plant would would use uh, glucose, not maltose. Okay. So it's it's there. It's good to know that it's there, but it's not really important to us from a brewing standpoint. Got it. Um, let's see. Where am I? Where am I? So we've talked about the shape of the starch molecules, kind of like a giant weeping willow tree or a hanging mop head, lots of branches. The alpha, beta, and limit dextrinase all work together to break up these chains and create lots and lots of maltose, mm-hmm. fermentable sugars. Um, Which is what we need. Yeah, and there was something else I was going to say, and I've forgotten 
Well, why don't we take a quick break? Okay. And we can come back and, and put some of this to work as well. Very good. Very All right. Good. Hang in there. You're listening to Bruce Strong with John Palmer. We'll be right back. Back to the two guys that know how to turn beer into beer. This is Brew Strong. Welcome back. Thanks for hanging out with myself and John Palmer on this episode of, yes, indeed. of Brew Strong. And John, I bet that you wanted to talk about the thermostability of the beta. <laughs> yes, yes, I did. In fact, the, the temperature ranges of all these enzymes, we've, we've kind of talked about what they are and what they do, but I haven't described how they, well, I've described how they do it, and I haven't, but I haven't described when. Right. Yeah. And so. let's just be clear that I just wanted to make myself look smart for a second. Palmer obviously made that note to me at the break. Uh, I shouldn't have, shouldn't have let anyone know. You're, you're very smart, Justin. Thank you, sir. Thank you. You know your way around a soundboard better than anybody I know. There you go. That's right. We all have our things. That's right. <laughs> um, yeah, so um, enzymes. Well, here's the thing about enzymes. They are, they are particular about the environment that they work in. And uh, basically, the happier we are, they are, the better they work. So in that case we're talking about temperature and pH ranges. Now, let me let me talk about pH first. We talk a lot about mash pH and what the optimum mash pH is and you hear, you know, 5.2 to 5.6 pH measured at room temperature. That's the general guideline. Um and there's, without going into too much detail, um, basically enzy- the enzymes are pretty happy between a pH of 5 and 6. Um, pH does not have as big an effect on enzyme activity as temperature does. However, if you do go below a pH of 5, you do start impacting activity. And if you go above a pH of 7, you start impacting activity. 5 to 6, uh, really, and even uh, when it comes to, you know, just straight out optimum performance, a pH greater of 6 or slightly greater, like 6 to 6.5, is actually optimum for many of the enzymes. Um, but uh, that does not produce a good tasting beer. The better tasting beers are produced at produced at a little lower pH, and that's why we talk about five two to five six being this target range. Okay. And within that target range, there's really not enough difference in performance to talk about um, optimizing mash pH to optimize enzyme efficiency. So. Um, so my my the bottom line is when it comes to pH and enzyme performances, as long as you're within that five two to five six range, between five and six, not less than five, you're good. So let's just leave it there. Okay. Um, there's a lot of papers um, available on the internet. There's a lot of papers available in journals um, that will that will give you know data and and you know conclusions that point you in one direction or another but um having reviewed lots of those and talked to the scientists that are really in the know on this subject there's a lot of conditions and qualifications that needs to be discussed in order to uh, talk about optimum so um, i'm going to leave it at that so uh, even even the ranges quoted in my book, How to Brew, um, should be taken with a grain of salt. Um, and uh, because, again, we're talking about I have I have sourced papers that have specified ranges that were based on the conditions of the test. And those conditions may not be the exact same conditions as your actual you know, mash and brew. So, pH, it's 5 to 6 is good enough. Let's leave it there. Now, when it comes to temperature, though, we know more. And uh, for your 
proteases, your protein enzymes, um, anywhere in the range of 50 to 60 degrees uh, Celsius is an active range. We used to talk about um, uh, lower ranges, lower temperatures, say 50 to 55 degrees C, um, which is, what, 140? I forgot to convert that to Fahrenheit. Um, yeah, around 140. Or no, sorry, one. Damn it. What is it, Fahrenheit? Um, yeah, 50 degrees C is 104 degrees Fahrenheit. Mm-hmm. And um, we used to talk about, you know, lower temperatures uh, favoring amino acids, higher temperatures favoring your head retention or vice versa. Um, subsequent work has, has determined that they're all pretty active. Um, there are lots of different forms of the enzymes there, you know, within these classes, so um, there's enough activity going on that you really can't uh, adjust temperature to differentiate how, what kinds of proteins you're attacking. Um, a protein rest will anywhere between 50 and 60 degrees C or 100 and – sorry, let me convert that again – 122 to – um, 140 degrees Fahrenheit, 50 to 60, that will degrade all types of protein. From, you know, large proteins and medium proteins, medium proteins into small proteins, small proteins into amino acids. It's all going on. So, uh, 100 years ago, when malt was less modified, a protein rest could be very useful in, you know, in releasing more protein and more soluble protein to the wort, enhancing uh, the the carbohydrate yield, the starch yield, as well as improving uh, yeast nutrition and head retention in the beer. These days, with our highly modified malts, all that protein work has been done by the maltster. Um, long protein rests greater than 15 minutes, you're going to start really degrading your head retention. So I don't recommend protein rests with modern malts. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, you can do a protein rest if you're using a high percentage of a protein-rich adjunct, such as unmalted barley, flaked barley, flaked rye, flaked oats. You can include a protein rest if you wish. That will help break up these large proteins and make into the medium size that can aid your head retention. Um, but generally, there's enough protein in the wort, uh, even with the modern malts, that you really don't need to do that until you get up to, say, like over 30% of an un- unmalted adjunct. Okay. Again, lots of lots of conditions on and qualifications on those statements, but as a general rule of thumb, I would that's where I'd kind of throw it. Um, next, so that's that's your protein range. Your protein range is fifty to sixty degrees C, one hundred and twenty-two to one hundred and forty degrees Fahrenheit. For your um, amylase enzymes, your starch conversion enzymes. Um, you the beta amylase is the most thermal unstable enzyme we have um it is denatured when you get above 65 degrees c now it doesn't denature instantly it takes time and um some studies some good studies have demonstrated that after an hour at 65 degrees c 150, 149 degrees Fahrenheit, um, you will still have about 50% of your original activity from the beginning of the hour. So after an hour, you still have 50% activity of your beta amylase. It has denatured, but not completely. Okay. Um, uh, 65 degrees C, 149 degrees Fahrenheit, 150 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, again, that your kind of upper end of your gelatinization range. Um, these starches will start dissolving at the lower end of the range um, around 59 degrees C, 
138, 140 degrees Fahrenheit, and will generally finish around 63 degrees C, 145 degrees Fahrenheit. There's going to be a few stragglers left over, um, again, depending on barley variety and et cetera, et cetera. Um, so if you start out at a low temperature, say 145 degrees Fahrenheit, 63 degrees C, you may have, I mean, you've, you've, you've created conditions that are favorable to beta amylase. It won't be denatured like it will at higher temperatures, but a lot of your starches will still not be accessible for the enzyme to work on. So there is that trade-off. You kind of have to get above 65, 150 degrees Fahrenheit to get everything water-soluble and available to the enzymes, but now you start degrading your beta amylase. Limit dextrinase is also uh, kind of thermal uh, instable, uh, thermal liable, and uh, it is not. It is a little more robust than the beta, but it does prefer um, those lower temperatures. And um, but again, after an hour at 65 degrees Celsius, 150 degrees Fahrenheit, um, you still have about 50 percent activity. Alpha amylase is has a much wider temperature range. Um, it is active from the beginning of the mash, you know, down near um, 100 degrees Fahrenheit when you mash in, uh, if you mash in that low, um, all the way up to 170 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, where it's finally denatured at your mash-out temperatures. So, um, it again, its optimum range where it does the most of activity is after gelatinization, greater than 65 degrees Celsius, 150 degrees Fahrenheit, to about 165 degrees Fahrenheit, or um, 67, 68, somewhere in there, degrees mm. Celsius. And so the reason we then bring it up above 170 is because we want to denature those things and we want everything to stop. Is that right? Yeah, the idea is that is twofold, um, and it depends on which country you talk to. Hmm. Um, from a German point of view, you're doing mash out to get a complete solubilization of the starch, mm -hmm. and uh, you you kind of take it up to one one sixty eight one seventy because there is still a remnant of alpha amylase active at that temperature. Um, that will finally act on that residual starch that may finally become soluble. Again, you're going to catch everything. You're going to get maximum extract. I see. Uh, from a more British point of view, you're doing mash out to uh, lock in the fermentability of your wort. So you've done your mash. You, you're trying to drive good fermentability um, and... You do a mash out to at like a, a little over 170, 175. You're trying to completely denature all these enzymes and lock in that degree of fermentability, as well as uh, the increased heat. You know, making those sugars less viscous and allowing a better laudering of the mash. Nice. So, a couple different, couple different points of view, a couple different things going on. Uh, during mash out, mash out is not is not required. Um, depends on your brewing system. Um, I used to not do it um, all the time. I used you know I did single infusion mashes in a large cooler. Didn't worry about it. My beer always turned out fine. Okay. Um, other people swear by them, and now that I have you know a uh, uh, I'm brewing on a Blickman Brew Easy, uh, which has good temperature control. A mash out is no more difficult than just pushing the button to raise the temperature on the controller, and boom, it's doing a mash out for me. And so, why not if it's so easy? Yeah, perfect. <laughs> um, but not required. Not required. There are there are reasons to do it, but 
you know, at a homebrew scale, really not important. Okay. I never really did. I, I, I learned about it on one of the shows and then I, I thought, wow, I should start doing that. And I still never did it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, it's I, the only reason I do it is because it's right there in front of me. I can just push a button. Right. But, yeah. you know, otherwise I wouldn't bother. Okay. Um, so anyway. All right. Um, yeah. So, you know, we talk about, we, we understand as brewers, we have these uh, ranges where the enzymes are most active. And this is where we talk about multi-step mashing, single-step mashing, uh, and then as well as decoction. And what we're trying to do is, uh, you know, emphasize one enzyme's action over another. Now, I've talked about, you know, using a protein rest and not using a protein rest on modern malts because that work's been done by the maltster. Um, you know, 200 years ago, when when malt was less modified, when the barley itself was harder to malt, um, you know, we we had methods. We had decoction mashing, which involves boiling portions of the grist. That is, you take um, a portion of the grist, about a third of it out, get it mostly, or you let let most of the work drain out of it, and you bring it to a boil. Um, that way, the boiling action helps gelatinize those starches, helps break up the, that that endosperm more. And so, so when you put that back in the mash, you do two things. You raise the temperature of the mash, get it to your next temperature rest, and you're, um, you've released more starches for the enzymes to work on. And you do that a couple of times. Um, you know, decoction, we, we should probably do a decoction show at some point to yeah. talk all about decoction and what it really does and why it did it. Um, long story short, though, is that, again, modern malts, they are they have been fully mod- modified. Decoction mashing is no longer necessary. Even multi-step mashing, uh, which is the British process where you don't boil the grist, you simply raise the temperature of the mash to these different uh, enzyme rests, um, is not strictly necessary. Mm. Uh, you can do it to enhance fermentability. You can do it to, again, release a little bit more protein uh, from a higher adjunct wort uh, into the wort, um, but not strictly necessary. Okay. Single infusion um, single infusion is the compromise of all these different enzymes groups that we've talked about. Your proteases, we talk about those being active 50 to 60 degrees C or 122 to 140. Well, guess what? They're still active outside that range. Um, That's the optimum range, but they're still active outside that range. And so they are still acting when we do our single temperature infusion mash at 150 to 155 degrees Fahrenheit. They still they still work and they're doing some work there for us, mm. uh, and that's okay because you know we we produce good beers with single temp infusion. Mm-hmm. Um, you know it's just useful to understand that these things are still going on. We're not enhancing them. We're not over we're not over mashing our our malts, and we're not breaking down uh, our proteins too, too much. Uh, so again. Um, 150 to 155 degrees Fahrenheit, which translates to 65 to about 67 degrees C. That's the general range um, for single temp infusion mashing. Um, it's a good compromise. We are a little bit higher than the optimum for. Uh, I'm going to cut out here because I cannot turn off the the ringer. <laughs> That's I'm okay. Hit. I'll so we're going to have to cut out this section. I got you. Fucking robocallers. <laughs> Please send all your money to Rwanda. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So going back. So 
um, single temp infusion mashing, um, 150, 155. Um, we've gone above that gelatinization temperature. All the starches are fully soluble. Um, beta amylase and limit dextrinase are being denatured slowly. Uh, because we're a little bit above their preferred range. But even after an hour of mashing at these temperatures, we still have better than 50% activity. And so um, all three of these enzymes, the alpha, the beta, and the limit dextrinase, all work together to very efficiently break up these starches into fermentable and non-fermentable sugars. Um, again, modern malts, very, uh, you know, they've been they've been uh, agriculturally enhanced to, you know, malt well to mash well. Um, you're gonna get seventy five percent of your total extract. In other words, seventy five percent of those starches will be converted to sugars within about the first fifteen minutes of the mash. So why do we mash longer? You ask. Yeah. Well. Well, 75% isn't 99%. Um, and so as you go longer in that hour, mm -hmm. uh, you start getting more and more. Within a half an hour, I think you're at 90%. Okay. 45 minutes, uh, 95%, and 60 minutes, 97%, or something like that. Hmm. You, you can see how it kind of tapers off yeah. uh, with increases in time. If you mash for the full, like a full 90 minutes, yeah, you're going to grab another percent, okay. 1%. Yeah. So um, from, a, from a commercial brewer's point of view, they may be interested in a shorter mash. Time is money. From a home brewer's point of view, I don't think it's important. I think, you know, mash that hour, you know, have a beer, you know, yeah. clean something, get your fermenter ready, you know, don't try to rush the brewing process. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So, um, yeah, mash that full hour. Things are going to happen the way we want them to. Um, again, um the different mashing methods, single, single temperature, multi-temperature, decoction, um, a lot of that goes back to the kind of malt that it is, the modification of that malt, um, the amount of specialty malts and adjuncts that you've added into that beer. Um, you know, you can adjust the mash um, for, the, for particular reasons. Um, you look at probably 70 to 80 90 percent of the commercial breweries today they are doing single temp infusions on every beer style okay and uh so as as home brewers we can play with multi-step mashes because it's fun mm -hmm. but i want i want people to understand that it's not necessary okay and really diminishing returns if it's difficult for you to do so, if you don't have a brew easy, you know. Yeah, so. yeah. If you don't have a good a, ver a good controllable system, you know, yeah, it's, it's a lot of work. Sure. Um, you can do multiple infusions in a cooler, you know, adding more water in, hot water in each time to raise the temperature. A lot of work that you really don't have to do unless you're doing it just for fun. Makes sense. Okay. Final note what do you got um if you are doing sour beers kettle sours particularly um and that is where you have um a wort that you have pasteurized and you're now inoculating that wort in the kettle with um outside bacteria lactobacillus either from a yogurt culture or a um, probiotic capsule or from an actual, you know, uh, bacteria pouch from a, a yeast supplier, you know, adding lactobacillus in to sour the beer and create like something like a Berliner Weiss or a, uh, an American sour or Lambic sour and so on. Um, lactobacillus, these bacteria have 
enzymes themselves, and so do the yeast. The lactobacillus actually contains proteases that will break down proteins. So if you underpitch um, your lactobacillus culture, um, and it slowly, slowly sours over a, more than 24 hours, um, the proteases in the, from the lactobacillus will break down a lot of your head retention proteins. And I see this in kettle sours and competition where you have a nice sour beer, you know, great flavors and so on, no head retention. Mm. Okay. And one thing you can do to mitigate that is to pre-sour your kettle sour. Um, use roughly five milliliters of lactic acid into the batch. Um, bring the pH of that uh, wort down to about 4.5, 4.8. And in doing so, you will, uh, you will denature the proteases. And so uh, you're going to denature those and uh, retain your head retention proteins. Okay. Pre-sour your sour with John Palmer. Yeah, it's it's in How to Brew uh, in the latest edition, um, in the Sours chapter. Okay. Um, good little good technique I learned from the Milk the Funk page and all the the sour beer producers over there. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, Sour Hour, a great show. Um, I wish I brewed more sours because uh, I do like them. Yeah. So, but uh, that's a good little good little tip. You know, if you even though pre-souring your sour seems like cheating, it is a good way to uh, prevent a loss of head retention due to the action of proteases from the lactobacillus. All right, well, it makes sense to me. Believe it or not. Good. Good. All right. Well, Does that cover it? I think that covers it. I mean, uh, we could go into mashing, you know, and in practice. But uh, honestly, I think uh, that's another whole show in and of itself. And I think Jamil and I have done that. Sure. Uh, in yeah. fact. Yeah. Well, you can look for almost any topic on Bruce Strong, by the way. You guys have been doing it long enough. I don't know if you folks know at home. There is a search function on our website. Um, so you can go to thebrewingnetwork.com, and you can search uh, mashing. You can search mash temperature. You can search enzymes, and you'll find the last enzyme show that uh, John Palmer and Jamil did with, um, with Colin Kaminsky, as you mentioned at the beginning of this episode. Um, so any of these topics, if you're looking to dive deeper, um, use the search function on thebrewingnetwork.com. Com and you'll find uh, you'll find Bruce Strong uh, up the wazoo, for lack of a better term. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good term for yeah, Bruce Strong. That's yeah. right. All right, John. Well, thank you so much for that. And uh, I believe the next time I speak to you, we will be in Providence, Rhode Island. Yeah, I can't wait. Yeah, me too. We'll be doing some live shows from there. So uh, just come on over to the Brewing Network booth, and you can meet John and Jamil and, and watch a, a live Bruce Strong. Don't forget to go get your BNA 14 tickets. You're going to be there with me, right, John? I sure will. All right. We'll be partying at Fet Music Hall. Go to thebrewingnetwork.com for that, and we'd love to see you there. All right, everybody. Thanks, John Palmer. Thank you. Bruce Strong, everyone. Bruce Strong.